You know one of the best parts about tabletop games? Dice. Colorful dice, glittery dice, dice that match your character's personality and flair. Even better, dice made by a queer fab femme like Leah of Greenleaf Geek. Greenleaf Geek makes custom handmade RPG dice, runes, and resin accessories, including per-ehedral cat dice. Use code PENWITCH for 10% off your orders at greenleafgeek.com. Some restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 20 of Behold Her, a podcast that showcases the diverse stories of femme gamers in tabletop. I'm your host, Lisa Penrose, and this episode's theme is games for one or two. Players, that is. I chat with Becky Anison of Black Armada and Kate Elliott of It's Elliot Kate about designing tabletop games for the smallest of adventuring parties. Then, Beth Ball of D&D Duet shares a magical tale that mirrors her writing journey. Beth's audio story is graciously sponsored by Multiverse. Multiverse is an online video game platform making it as easy as possible to make, play, stream, and share tabletop role-playing games with a creator-focused marketplace. I love how intuitive Multiverse is, but also Multiverse is a diverse and multicultural team building a modern, easy-to-use gaming platform that combines the best of video games and TTRPGs into one amazing experience, as well as fostering an inclusive and welcoming community for gaming newcomers and experienced hobbyists alike. I'm so thrilled to have this team's support for Beholder. Thank you, Multiverse. All right, it's story time. Becky Anison, pronouns she, her, is an award-winning RPG designer of Lovecraft-esque Bite Marks, When the Dark is Gone, and other games by the creator duet known as Black Armada. I am here with Becky Anison to chat about solo and two-player games. Becky, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really exciting to be here. I can't wait till we get to the specific games that you have worked on because they look so up my alley. <laughs> let's start, let's back it up a little bit and start a little more general. Tell me, how did you first get into the tabletop hobby? Oh, wow. So um, this is a story that goes back on many, many years, 30 years I've been role playing, which now I've said that out loud feels quite scary but never mind let's let's crack on um and I, I have told this story before so I feel like I need to apologize for anybody who has heard it before but when I was 11 I went into my school library and I got a book out and I think in hindsight it must have been some sort of satanic panic morality tale because the sort of the message of the story was very strongly Dungeons and Dragons is dangerous it'll make you try and kill your friends but the message that I took away from the book was Dungeons and Dragons looks amazing. You should try that. <laughs> so <laughs> for my next birthday, I saved up all of my birthday money and um, made a parent take me out uh, to buy my first ever box set. And it was the box set, which it wasn't a red box set. I'm not, I'm not that old. All I remember about it was it was black with a big red dragon on the front and that it had this kind of set of almost like cards inside maybe with a sort of rainbow tab system that kind of taught you D&D in this really really easy to get to grips with way um, and I've been I've been role playing ever since then basically. 
Ooh, so you have that that D and D, that gateway game. What was it about Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop in general that really hooked you? Funnily enough, I think that Dungeons and Dragons wasn't the game that hooked me. It was okay. the gateway game, as you as you said, and I enjoyed playing it, and it was good fun, and it allowed me to meet people who were playing other sorts of games. And I remember when I was about seventeen, I got picked up by a local gaming group um, who ran a, a real variety of things, from sort of Warhammer, uh, Warhammer Fantasy, um, Dragon Lance Fifth Age. Does anybody remember that? Um, as sort of a Marvel superheroes game as well, which is sort of like top trumps, but it was like role-playing game. And instead of dice, you had these like trump cards. I always remember that. Um, but the game that got me hooked was Amber Diceless. But there was a very long-running campaign of Amber Diceless um, that my then-boyfriend was running. And, and that, Amber Diceless, is what got me hooked on role-playing. As the name suggests, was that a Diceless like storytelling game? I don't know if you call it storytelling. I think there was absolutely elements of a storytelling game or the kind of the nascent beginnings of storytelling games within it. Uh, as to the um, dice, there was still a proper full-on resolution mechanic. There was still a GM who's very much in charge of the world and the reality. Um, you resolved conflicts mostly by comparing stats um, and then seeing if you had done anything to kind of fictionally tip the scales in your favor which i suppose is quite story forward story first isn't it yeah but being informed by character sheets but maybe getting to using those as prompts being inspired to to tell a story together yeah i just think that's really interesting because looking at your portfolio you work on a lot of diceless and sometimes gmless games i do i do and i think that's because of the different ways that you can create a role-playing game, I think those are the ones that I find most freeing and compelling in what you can do with the form. I think that whilst I still love playing, I suppose, what you'd call more traditional games um, with very long character sheets, um, I design the games that I want to run. And I don't want to run those games. I'm happy to play them, but that's not where my GMing sweet spot lies. So mostly I think I'm... I'm designing the games that I want to run for people. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about that transition from being a player, maybe a game master, to designing for tabletop. I think in some ways it started with designing for LARP. Oh. Yeah, I know. Uh, so um, going kind of flashing forward from 17-year-old Becky through to the age of sort of maybe 20, 21-year-old Becky, um, I, when I was at university, uh, we had a really vibrant role-playing society where I was at university. And when I say vibrant, I mean that there would regularly be 40 people turning up on game night. Oh. And we would run kind of two to three events a week and minimum you'd get sort of 20 people turning up. Normally it would be more like 40, 45. So it was a really, really kind of big deal, actually, that there was huge amounts of gaming going on. And one of the things that marked out, I think, the gaming I did at university was that there was loads of tabletop happening um, and board gaming and, and Magic the Gathering. But the big game, the game that drew in the 40 people, was a custom-written LARP, which was custom-written for sort of a year of university and then that we would just 
throw the entire game. It would only run for sort of three terms and the entire game and the entire system would be scrapped. A completely new one would be written for the next year. And so I uh, was on two GM teams who designed the setting, the system, then ran the game for a year. And so that's absolutely where I started. I got my start in LARP. And I think that if you look at some of my really early work, my early games, like When the Dark is Gone, that was published by Pelgrim Press. That was the very first game that I ever had published. Uh, many people have joked how it's basically just a stealth LARP, and they are right. <laughs> oh, gosh, I wish that I had that sort of group when I was in university, just because that sounds so fun. You you can't see me because we're just recording audio, but my jaw dropped. I was like, that's so cool. I feel absolutely blessed that I had that experience. And it was really this amazing kind of crucible of ideas and experimentation and hugely supportive people, everybody doing it together. You know, the GM teams when who were creating these games could be as small as four or five people and as big as eight or nine. So it was a really big thing. And that was also a sort of a slight sense of mentorship that you would usually come onto a team having never done it before. And there would be lots of experienced people who'd help you. And then a couple of years later, you would be the experienced person who would be helping maybe the first years coming and being a part of the GMing team. And it was just such a lovely um, way. And, and many of the people that I role played with back then are still really close friends of mine. Many of them are still designing. That's where I met Josh. So it was just a very sort of a bit of a golden age, I suppose, for me. That sounds like such a wholesome and lovely way to really dive into any hobby really, but this hobby in particular. So keeping in mind that it seems like those LARPing days really influenced your design style, uh, at least in the beginning, how would you describe your game design approach? So I remember a few years ago, a discussion we were having where people sort of said, oh, you know, when you sit down to design a game, what's the first thing you think about? And and there was a number of us who were talking about what our first guiding light was and uh, you know without almost without thinking I said the first thing I asked myself is what do I want my parent my players to feel and that is the kind of the really the foundation of all of the game work that I do it's that sense of the people who are going to sit down and experience this game what are the feelings and the emotions that I want them to get out of it so how can I build a system or a setting or a set of pointy questions or a, a, a way of character relationships to unfold, which is going to more or less reliably invoke that experience and feeling for the people sitting at the table. Is there an example of that approach in action uh, for one of the games you've created? Yeah, absolutely. So they, there is uh, a smaller game on itch that I wrote called, I think I called it The Food of Love. Now I'm, I'm, I'm worrying that I called it something else because for a while it was romantic Shakespeare game working title. Um, I think I ended up calling it It's called it The Food of Love. Hooray! Yeah. That's a relief. Um, and so that was a really specific game that I had a really, really clear idea from, which came about because I said to myself, there are just some games out there which cannot replicate the feelings that I want to replicate. And the most notable thing is um, that I am a huge fan of Terry Pratchett novels. 
I have been reading Terry Pratchett novels for pretty much as long as I've been role-playing, if not slightly longer. Um, and I think that his satire is pretty much unparalleled in the modern age. Um, but what makes his books so clever and so brilliant and so good is that he spends ages honing them. You know, he doesn't sit around a role-playing table with his friends. Is that when he comes up with things like the Vimes Boots theory of economics... Or when he has Granny Weatherwax say sin is treating other people like uh, treating people like their things, and that includes yourself. These sort of really philosophical and heavy quotes coming out of a comedy book come from the fact that he has developed his art over many years. And so that was the big thing that's always in my mind is. I will never play a Terry Pratchett game because I don't want to just play Dungeons and Dragons with an Ankh more pork flavour. I want to play the game where Vimes says something as profound as the economic theory of boots to me. And that's never going to happen. And I said, well, I would like to write a game which tried to do something like that. But the obvious one would be Shakespeare. Because much like Terry Pratchett, what is um, so moving about Shakespeare is his amazing use of language, which he refined over an incredibly long career. And yet again, I do not expect um, my players and my friends, as, as fantastic as they all are, to be able to come up with something as moving as Shakespeare's sonnets mm-hmm. improvised at the real playing table. I'm a kind friend. I don't have that high expectations of people. (laughs) Um, Because Shakespeare wouldn't have been able to do that. And then I thought, but what if you had a game which actually used Shakespeare's language to evoke those feelings of romance? And it reminded me that a lot of friends of mine do something called play read-throughs. Um, I, I've never um, been able to do it, but it's where instead of sitting around role playing, you might all sit around a table with copies of Romeo and Juliet and you will assign parts and then you will act it out around the table. Um, play read throughs. I think it's a, I think it's a lovely idea. And I kind of thought, what if I wrote a role playing game which charted the trajectory of two actors and the relationship trajectory of two actors who come together to do a sort of a Shakespeare review and the scenes between the actors are spliced up with the words of Shakespeare and as the game progresses and the two actor characters fall in love um, each of those scenes where they're slowly falling in love or perhaps falling out is punctuated by some of what I consider to be Shakespeare's most romantic words and so I suppose for anybody listening to this then you'll get an insight into my soul because I have I have very carefully picked the plays and the sonnets that I consider to be the most beautiful and the most romantic of his um and but the idea is is that you allow the words of Shakespeare to bring up all of those emotions and those feelings in you and then channel that into the scenes that you have spliced into between them oh I love that concept and I also feel like that would be an amazing date night game. Oh, wouldn't it just? Just to fall in love with your partner all over again uh, as your characters. That's very, very cool. So for folks listening, that is a two-player game on blackarmada.itch.io. The theme of this episode is all about solo and duet games, one and two-player games. So before I ask you about a bunch of other 
games in this category that you have created. What would you say makes a particularly good solo game? There might be folks, I imagine, who've mostly played games that are Dungeons and Dragons or similar to D&D, who don't even realize that you could play a tabletop game or an RPG with just one other person or even by yourself. I think that's really interesting. And part of the reason it's very interesting to me, less, well, no, including the solo stuff, actually. I'm just remembering back in the day, 17-year-old Becky, the role-playing I was doing in the group was occasionally five people sitting in a room, but it would more often than not be the GM and one other person. And then we, the rest of us would be sitting in another room or sitting outside and then sort of be brought in when it was your turn to be GM'd for half an hour or 45 minutes at the next kind of iteration of the story. And I have always thought that there was there were games out there for which that style of play was absolutely made. So, for example, um, being a, a child of the 90s and a role player of the 90s, I have played a lot of Vampire. I've played a lot of World of Darkness games. But the thing that always struck me about Vampire was it's really a one-to-one game. It's a one-on-one game between a player and a GM. It's not a party game. It works much, much better if if it's you um, being GM'd on a one-on-one basis. So the idea that you might have a, a duet or a one GM, one player, and play through is very, very familiar to me. But there's a huge creative burden in a traditional GM game when you do that. Because instead of you bouncing off other players and talking to the other players and giving that GM a sort of a little bit of a breather, I suppose. It's just a conversation between you and the GM. Um, and it's really, really intense. And it can be very tiring and intense, the GM. And I've, But I think that, again, with the what about solo games, you know, going all the way back to Amber Diceless, one of the things that you get points for in Amber Diceless to build your character is creating in-character poetry, or creating, writing an in-character journal, or I think drawing in-character drawings. So the idea that you would be playing this role-playing game, having some sessions with a GM, and then going away and journaling about your character's feelings and what was going on for them, or writing poetry to express it, or drawing trumps, or something like that. So it seemed to me very natural to move from that to um, writing games where the system is specifically designed to get the best out of a one-player game or a two-player game. Because I definitely think there's ways that you can design that make it easier, um, more satisfying. You know, But with the right motivation, you can make a one- or a two-player game out of anything. I saw some of your games which have ranges of players they can accommodate. And so it begins at two to as large as five. So I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about the dynamic of games with two players, especially if, I mean, you talked about the relationship between one GM and one player, uh, but if it's a GM-less game, what the dynamic is like with two people and how that changes with three or more people. I think when it's two people, I think a few things happen, actually. And, and this is specifically a GM list, not a GM game, as I said. But I think the first thing that happens is that you can get this amazing kind of feedback going where, I mean, we talk a lot in the kind of indie storytelling role-playing space about 
how cool it is to build on the things that other people have said. If somebody else creates a detail or a plot thread and then you build on it or reincorporate it, firstly, that's a really good thing to do from a storytelling perspective. But secondly, it's an amazing thing to do in terms of making that other person feel fantastic. If you come up with an idea and I say, that's brilliant, I'm going to totally reincorporate that. I'm going to do have my NPC do a callback to it and I'm going to build on it in this way. I think that the, the person who came up with the original idea feels like, wow, you know, that was cool. I came up with a great idea and they must have thought it was great because look what they've done with it. That's fantastic. So I think it sets up this really gorgeous, positive feedback loop between the players. And it's really easy to do that with two players to kind of get that feedback loop going because there's only two of you. I think the other thing that you can do with two players is that if you do want to explore more emotional role playing, or just if the two of you want to take the story off in a particular direction, you don't have to worry that anybody else is kind of sitting there twiddling their thumbs and going, oh, when are they going to get through this bit? You know, I always worry a little bit, mm-hmm. or I always used to worry in some games, that if um, I was having a really intense plot just for my character, or if me and one other character was sort of maybe having a romance plot or a rivalry plot, that if we just sat there and did that for an hour in front of everybody else, then you know, on the one hand, that's kind of cool. But on the other hand, you're kind of taking up quite a lot of space and quite a lot of airtime. So there's always that slight inhibition of, is this okay? I'm not sure. When you have two players, you don't have to worry about that. You know, you two decide where you want to go. And you can go in as deep and as detailed as you both enjoy, perfectly calibrated to what the two of you are enjoying in the game. Like I could tell in playing uh, small group games or two player games that there definitely feels like a big difference between two and three people. And you mm. vocalize that so well. I want to show off some of the games <laughs> that you've created. I picked a couple of my favorites that I'm hoping you can give an elevator pitch of. And then if there's any other words you want to add about having created the game. First is a game that I want to play as soon as I get a free weekend to myself, no plans, uh, is Wreck This Deck. Can you tell me about this game? Oh man, I love this game. Wreck This Deck is a game where you take a deck of playing cards, you create for yourself the character of a mage who is learning how to summon demons and you summon demons into the cards in your deck but in order to bind them into the cards in your deck you have to modify the cards you might have to paint them or rip them i've sewn up cards stick notes on them um put them (laughs) put them in like burn them through with candles design your little mini rituals to do and so the idea is you end up with this deck. Now, you tell fortunes with the deck, you can do rituals with the deck, but of course, after a while, you're telling these fortunes and the cards that are coming up are the ones you've wrecked. That sounds, first of all, like I, that's very much up my alley. I just love doing like little crafty things and creating little like artifacts. But this also sounds like, a, like if you really wanted to get into a character for a larger group role-playing game, and you wanted to play a magic user of some sort, you could t- I feel like you could totally play Wreck This Deck to really understand your character and figure out their relationship with demons and all of that uh, to boost your role-playing. Oh, you totally could. You absolutely could do that. That's 100% what I'm going to do. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna play the game and then I'm going to make a D&D character based off of uh, the game. So very cool. The other game I wanted to call out was Heaven Sent. 
Can you give me the pitch for that one? So I think I wrote Heaven Sent for a game jam, or at least, so it's a bit of a perennial problem for me, actually, is that I write things for game jams, but I just can't bring myself to submit them if I haven't played them. And by the time I've got around to playing, the jam's usually over. So then I, <laughs> if I think they're good, I put them up on itch. Uh, but Heaven Sent was, uh, it started out as a game jam game about letter writing. I think it was a game jam that was happening really early in the pandemic when everything was shut down. And so the idea of kind of writing letters back and forth to have that sort of communication with people when you couldn't go out to role-playing sessions. I, th- I think that's where the jam came from. So the concept of Heaven Sent is that uh, it's a two-player game. One of you is playing an agony aunt in a teen girl magazine. The other one of you is playing either your choice, but you don't tell the other player, an angel or a demon with a problem that you're writing into the agony aunt about. And there's a kind of a, a careful trajectory planned about... Uh, throughout the game uh, if you're playing the angel or the demon how much of what's going on for you you can reveal so part of the fun is like writing about your angelic problem in a way which kind of gives the agony aunt enough information to give you some advice but doesn't make it really clear that you're an angel oh my gosh this concept sounds so ridiculous and fun that i'm like giggly right now I had the best time playtesting it um, with my excellent friend, Elizabeth Lovegrove. And you can, um, if you dig around the internet, I'll I'll find a link and send it over. But there is a link to our playtest. Because one of the ways that you play the game is that you play the game on uh, like a forum or a blog or something and invite members of the public to be awful in the comments. Oh my goodness. I would love to read that. Please send that link. I'll send um, it over. That seems so fun. Okay. Um, I'll pick one more. Uh, and this one, I believe, is, um, if it's not also on your itch, it is on the blackarmada.com website. And this one stood out to me because I just love horror of practically any genre. The game is Lovecraft-esque. Uh, But what I really liked is in the description is that uh, you all say like there won't be any like deep ones. Uh, There's going to be a completely fresh take on the genre every game. Uh, So tell me a little bit about that one. That's one that I co-wrote with my um, partner, Josh Fox. And it came about many, many years ago because I had gone to a convention uh, in the UK called Dragon Meat which is sort of one of our really big role-playing conventions. And while I was there, I popped round to Graham Wormsley's stall. And whilst I was at his stall saying hi and catching up with him, I bought a copy of his book, Stealing Cthulhu. And what Stealing Cthulhu is, is it is a system-neutral book, so you can use it for any Lovecraft game that you want to play. Instead of it being a sort of pulp fiction game where you've got your shotguns and you're running after Cthulhu, what Graham does in Stealing Cthulhu is that he explains how Lovecraft pulls together the the rhythm of his stories. So it will say, okay, so he usually goes through this kind of creeping horror phase. So for the X part of the story, you don't really see the horror. It's sort of in the shadows. You might see kind of clues relating to it, but nothing that will make you think, yes, there's definitely a horror there. Um, And then there'll be a journey into darkness and then there'll be a confrontation. Oh, and by the way, there's almost always a lone protagonist. And as I was reading Graham's sort of forensic dissecting 
of H.P. Lovecraft's stories. You know, I just sort of said to Josh, um, slightly tongue-in-cheek, I do think it's ridiculous. Graham has basically written the blueprint print for a, a Lovecraft story game here. I don't know why he hasn't written the game itself. And Josh said, well, we should write it then. So we did. Um, <laughs> and the, the idea we had from the very beginning was that we would not write a game which had deep ones or any or Mego or any of the traditional horrors, because what we didn't want was people sitting there, um, you know, and, and you must have experienced this in games as well. Somebody who is so well versed in the law of the setting that the second you describe something, they go, oh, that's the Eldar. Mm-hmm. And there are some games which that's really cool for. But in a horror game, you want to be shocked and surprised and you want it to be horrifying and fresh and new. And we thought, you know, actually, there are some really clear rules about how Lovecraft establishes the sense of horror that means that we can write a game where people create their own monsters every single time it's your own monster is completely fresh. But it feels like you're in a Lovecraft game because you are following these rules about the rhythm of the horror, the rhythm of how the story unfolds when the clues come in, um, you know, and brings in a lot of his motifs and his language. But of course, you know, it, we were not comfortable with the idea of putting out a game based on the writings of a known racist without at least, you know, some quite detailed descriptions on how you can have a game about cosmic horror without moving it into racism. And we went and consulted various people and and commissioned an essay. um, And I know there's some people out there who say that you can never divorce the source material. I hope that we have done. Now I don't know which one of these three games I want to play first because I'm like, <laughs> and I know I know people comment that I'm a really enthusiastic host. I've seen I've seen the reviews and like I'm really positive and stuff, but like I really really want to play all three of these games. So when I can play by myself, I'm gonna make my best friend play the letter writing game with me. And I have a group that does uh, horror games, so I'm gonna suggest Lovecraft esque as maybe our next system we explore. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh my goodness, Becky! So two questions for you. The first being, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about today? I actually wanted to put a little bit more flesh on the bones of Reckless Deck, if that's okay. Yeah, please. And because the idea came from sort of a couple of different places um, when I wrote it, I think partly it was very strongly informed by early Becky having a copy of Reckless Journal. I don't know. Very familiar with that. Yeah, (laughs) which I loved. Absolutely love Reckless Journal. And I love the kind of the transgression involved in buying a book, an actual book, not a notebook, but a book, and then being encouraged to just trash it with your art. And I just love that. And then I remember when um, Pandemic Legacy came out and Josh and I played Pandemic Legacy, the whole thing together. We absolutely loved it. I won't spoil it for anybody except to say at various different points you have to rip up or modify cards and what was so interesting to me was that I loved doing that the kind of the transgressiveness of modifying the cards was so satisfying and but I had to do it all because every time I did it Josh winced and when we had to rip up a card he actually couldn't bring himself to do it and he would hand it to me and I was like <laughs> you know what if it's this much of a taboo then this would make a really kind of cool, visceral experience as a solo role-playing game. Very cool. Gosh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I feel like if I were just randomly ripping up cards, 
I, I maybe my personality is maybe a little bit like Josh, where that would be hard. <laughs> um, but I feel like doing it as part of a game where that is the point of the game is a little bit different. Like you're transforming it more than completely destroying it. That's how I think of it. I mean, originally I thought I might do it with a tarot deck. And then I thought, you know what? If somebody shells out, even for like a mass produced tarot deck, they can be quite expensive. That's a really high barrier to entry to ask somebody to start trashing a tarot deck. So I'll just go with like a normal cheap deck of playing cards because then that lowers the barrier to entry for everybody. But yeah, there was in my mind the sense of you could do this with a tarot deck and that would be even more transgressive. Oh my goodness. I have very mixed feelings about that. And I feel like I'm going (laughs) to examine those after this call. Um, So if my second question was, if folks want to find these games, find you and see what new things you put out, where can they follow you on the internet? Right. Well, we have a website, blackarmada.com, which is our sort of storefront and our blog and all of that sort of good stuff. I have a Twitter, which is uh, at Becky Anison. Um, we have the Black Armada Itch store and then uh, we have a Black Armada Patreon as well. Where So normally we'd kind of put our small games up on the Patreon and then after a certain kind of month or two after they've been published, they get taken off the Patreon and put on Itch. So we'll eventually end up on Itch anyway. Awesome. Becky, thank you so much today for sharing your wisdoms and your games with us. Thank you for inviting me on. I've had a really, really cool time talking to you. Kate Elliott, pronouns she, they, is a cosplayer, writer, gamer, and queer gender-fluid elf who pens evocative solo journaling games inspired by the magical. Hello, Kate Elliott. Thank you so much for joining me for Behold Her today. Hi, I have seen about the podcast around. It's one of those things that, you know, you see on Twitter all the time and you think you followed. And then I went to the page and was like, why am I not following this? Because this sounds really cool. Ah, yes, captured another one. (laughs) Well, I'm so excited to chat with you today. The theme of this episode is all about solo games and two-player games. So really, really small gaming groups, even just one person. And you have written quite a few solo games. So I'm really excited to get your perspective. Uh, Folks who follow the podcast recommended talking to you, which is always nice. Thank you, folks, uh, who recommended Kate. But before we jump into your game design, I wanted to kind of uh, start at the beginning. How did you get into tabletop games? Ah, see, tabletop games in general. You know, I I grew up in the Deep South around a lot of the satanic panic sort of stuff. And seriously, all I had heard about Dungeons and Dragons is that you have this controlling dungeon master that forces everybody to do these things and i basically thought it was like some mix of a ouija board and board game and super occultic mm-hmm. until like maybe five years ago okay and i saw it's like wait it's just people with paper and pencils and dice what is even going on here and then few years ago I started seeing a friend on Facebook posting pictures of her pretty dice and I was like oh I I want dice I don't even know what you do with them but I want those (laughs) 
so valid. (laughs) And then a couple other close friends who I knew had very similar tastes to me were sharing gifts back and forth of Matthew Mercer. And I was like, Mm -hmm. what is this thing that you both love? And then the friend that posted the dice was talking more about Dungeons and Dragons. And I started watching Critical Role and then got a chance to play with those other two friends. And it just snowballed from there over the last, ah, a little less than three years now. Goodness gracious. So would you call yourself a critter? I would. Yeah, I I mean, I got into d and I had heard of it before, not through the lens of the Satanic Panic where I'm from, and had wanted to play, but didn't start until I started watching Critical Role right when they were to the beginning. So we're two critters in a pod here. Nice. It, it's, for me, it's one of those things that like, a, a lot of people talk about, you're going to have too many expectations if you watch it before you play. But for me, being able to see it is what I needed to get immersed in it to have some concept of what it was. Yeah. I feel like if you, if until you're a part of the hobby, things like an entire book of rules you feel like you have to learn even are, it's really hard to wrap your head around that. And then, but uh, seeing a group play, it's, you absorb the rules. You also get like what they're trying to facilitate. Uh, So that's really cool. So would you say, was Dungeons and Dragons your gateway game then? It was. I don't don't know how long it was before I started realizing there was a lot more out there. I guess I heard about Pathfinder first because I knew that Critical Role switched from that. So then I was like, well, what is this other one? And then I don't even know where it went from there. I just slowly started seeing little hints here and there of other games that I started looking into that. I had no clue existed until I was already playing D&D. Mm-hmm. So three years later, do you have favorite other tabletop role-playing games? The one that first comes to mind is Monster Hearts. Mm-hmm. I got to play in a one-shot of that, and it was it was amazing. That, I think, is the game that has stuck with me the most, the single game session. So what's really interesting to me that your beginning in games was so, I guess, anchored in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I think because of my background in D&D, a lot of my listeners also share that where they began with D&D. And so I think for a lot of folks, the idea that we're talking about solo games, something with one person instead of a group of people um, not needing to have a game master, it might be foreign for some folks. So tell me a little bit about how you transitioned from watching Critical Role, starting to play Dungeons and Dragons, even some monster hearts, to designing games and solo games in particular. When I first started seeing about solo games, my initial thought was, I, I'm not interested in that. It just sounds kind of, I don't know, boring to sit around. Like, how does this even work? Do you create your own dungeon and your own monsters and roll against yourself? And that, I I didn't get it. Uh, and I kept seeing some mention and started to just slowly realize that's not necessarily what it was. I mean, it could be, but that's not generally what they even are like. And I kept seeing Princess with the Cursed Sword mentioned. And... Mm-hmm. I think around the same time, I was getting ideas for stories I wanted to write because I've always loved writing. Mm-hmm. But I also 
know for me sitting down and writing a whole novel and not only writing it, but then editing it and going through 10 drafts. That just, my ADHD brain does not work that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I wanted to do more short form things. And the things that I've always loved writing the most have been journal entries from the perspective of characters. And that is what I felt was my best writing. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, well, what if there's a way to take these concepts I have and somehow make it into a game? And then Princess with the Cursor kept coming up as this solo game people really liked. So I got that one and played through that while trying to figure out how does this all work? Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating and really neat game. And then I started, I think, trying to write my first one while playing through other games as I realized what all it could be. And it just felt like the perfect fit for me of this prose and narrative and description that I wanted to write and a way to tell stories to people, but also enable them to be a part of the story and help create the story themselves. I love the way you've just sort of like crystallized that concept. That's very cool uh, that you're writing a story, but also the person playing is a big part of that process. That sounds so fun. And also now I feel like I have like 10 million questions I want to ask you all at the same time. (laughs) Um, So let me figure out where to start. Okay. So you started designing your first game. Is that one of the ones on your itch page? Uh, Yes, Into the Fey Woods. So Into the Fey Woods. So you're writing Into the Fey Woods as you are also playing other games. So I'm curious, as you were reading and playing these other games while you're designing your first game, what parts of just like concepts in your head about how a journal game uh, were sort of like proven by playing these other games? And what are things that you learned from playing other people's work? The, one, the ones I played, I'm trying to remember even, what did I play first? So there's Princess with a Cursed Sword, which uses cards and helps you build the story. And then I was playing through some of uh, Megan Cross's games, Sentinel. And just the way those stories stuck with me intrigued me because it was... You, get, you have your characters in other games that you play that can very much become a part of you. And I felt similarly about these and similarly to how I feel with favorite books and stories and other forms of media where there's just this, this piece of it that stays with you and it resonates with you. And it was intriguing to me that the games can help provide you with the framework that you can then create a story with. And they were both different styles. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole aspect of being able to just sit down with this game, this framework, and come up with my own story. And it'd be something I could do by myself. I didn't have to try to get a group together and make scheduling work for six people, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. more often than not doesn't end up working. 
and it could be relaxing and enjoyable. And there's such a variety of games. It can be intense and it, it can be an intense sort of like if you're playing a game where you're fighting a big battle and you're anxious about what's going to happen to your character. Or it can be a slow, relaxing story to enjoy right before bed. It can be such a spectrum of what all it can entail. And I love that it can be, whether as a player or as the creator, I'm writing and creating a story and there's this constant creativity going, which I thrive on. So let's talk about you as a designer for a bit. I'm looking at your itch page right now, your portfolio, and I'm certainly seeing a theme and one that definitely strikes my personal fancy. Uh, But I'm wondering if, uh, in your words, you can tell me a little bit about the types of stories you like to tell through your games, and maybe another way to say it would be your design approach or style. One of the things that I've felt as sort of a, a running theme that is also kind of the most complicated aspect of it for me in actual writing is I want to, like, like to be able to enable people to write those stories. And one of the things that I find difficult is I really want to provide people with a detail-rich narrative. I want to be able to immerse them in the setting to use all of the senses in the descriptions. But at the same time, I want to give them the freedom to create at the same time. Village Witch, for instance, I went season by season, which helps some. But I also left it up to the player to choose the setting throughout the game. And that can even change season to season, which meant in all of my descriptions... And all of the card prompts, they had to be able to be uh, loose enough that the player can then apply it to whatever they're setting, whatever the season that they chose. Whether they chose a village in a deep forest or one on the beach. And that's something that is difficult to, to be able to write, to be able to provide description that evokes your senses and that uh, immerses you in the world while still leaving that open to them. Are they walking through the woods in the winter or in the summer? How do you then describe things? Because you can't say it's a warm breeze if it's in the middle of the freezing winter. But that's something I find important is to provide a lot of detail because that's what I enjoy as a reader to, yeah, a lot of people don't like Tolkien's long pages and paragraphs of description, but I adore them. I love reading all the description and about every little detail and just being able to immerse myself in a world. And that's what I want to be able to give other people and their experience as they play through my games. So that's a really interesting challenge, wanting to add those evocative details while still keeping things broad in the way they need to be for prompts, as you've said. Can you give some examples, maybe from Village Witch, of how you met that challenge? Because that's a really interesting like puzzle in itself. It is. For instance, I have it broken down by card suits. Uh, you have your diamonds and hearts as one section and clubs and spades as another, and then broken down by card number. 
So one of the examples is you get caught in a storm, which could then be a winter storm, summer storm, whatever fits the setting. Or you're, you find a cave or a barrier herb patch. And for that one, the barrier herb patch, you, you could find a way to work that in whatever season. Mm-hmm. That there were uh, there were different prompts that I would like come up with. Oh, this could be a good idea, and then realize, wait, that's not going to fit if they choose the setting, or if they choose to do the setting in the season. And it takes a lot of trying to work through the prompts and just really think over them and try to apply them in my own head to all the potential combinations people could use of mm-hmm. say a beach in the summer versus the winter. And to try to figure out how to work that all together. Or like at the beginning of End of the Fay Woods, I the, one of the questions I ask for the setup is what season is it? Mm-hmm. Which then limited me a lot in trying to describe your walk through the forest. So you've touched on this a bit already, um, but I'm wondering if there are things you want to add. Uh, and my question is, what do you think makes a good solo game? I think that can vary greatly for me the story is very important Uh, not just playing through a challenge uh, something that's more mechanics driven where you don't touch a lot on story and character and who you are or who your character is as a person so I think it's good for people to be able to open it up and see what they need to do clearly I think there's so many different things that could make a good solo game depending on what a person is looking for from it but to me it's all about the story which is so interesting right because they're writing the story but you're also providing parts of that story or figuring out how to facilitate that for them which i guess as i'm saying that that's what tabletop role-playing games are generally all about Uh, it's just a different challenge for one person versus a whole table of people Right. And I, you know, now that I think about it, coming away from one shots sometimes where it's more, those are harder to work in story and character to have time to be able to let your character out as opposed to just, oh, you're all thrown into this dungeon, you have to fight the monster, and you don't really have time to get to know the other characters or interact as your character beyond just trying to fight the monster. And those are the ones that are always less satisfying to me. And I think it's because of that love of story and character. So delving into some of these stories you've created through your game, I would love to ask you about a few of them on the itch page and have you do a sort of, I guess, like your elevator pitch for each of those games. Tell folks what they're about so they they can get an idea of the breadth of stories out there. Um, Before I ask about the couple that I'm most personally interested in, do you have a favorite game that you've made so far? That's a hard one. I was trying to figure it out recently because I saw the question going around on Twitter about, like, what's your your game or your creation that you're most proud of? And it took me a while trying to sort through because the two that come to mind are Into the Feywoods and Village Witch. Mm -hmm. And it's... It's hard to choose. Um, <laughs> Into the Feywoods was the first one I wrote, and I really loved the idea of both 
the fae and the going in the woods and the, the ending that you're left with. You have to make a decision. And then Village Witch is, is more involved than that, but it's, it's been amazing to see what people have created from it. I have gotten to read through the stories several people have written and are even ongoing posting online. That's so exciting. And it's amazed me just how far people are taking it and how long the stories are people are making with it. So it's just so touching and means so much to see mm-hmm. how people have responded and what they've created with it. That sounds so rewarding as a creator. It is. I've just been blown away by it. One of your games that I'm super curious about, and I'd love if you gave like a sense of gameplay, perhaps, uh, and and what the game is about, uh, is Liminal Yearning. How would you describe that game? Like a, a dream where you're you're half awake, and you really want to keep going and keep dreaming to figure out what happens, and you're you're trying to stay asleep enough that you can stay in the dream until you figure out where it's going to go. I feel like you both added description. So for folks, I'm looking at the itch page right now, and it's a solo journaling game about lucid dreaming, liminal spaces, and romance. And I'm just left with so many, like, I want so many questions. I want to know what is this about? What do I do? What do I write? It's very, uh, just all those words you've chosen are very evocative. It was actually inspired by a dream I had. And then I woke up and I was like, but but what happened? (laughs) I love that you've tried to capture that experience as a game for others to experience. One of those dreams that then stays with you all day and you want to know more and I needed to write about it. And they decided that I would turn it into a game and put that experience out there for other people. Amazing. I think the really great thing about game design is you're facilitating an experience for folks. Like they might not necessarily be going out and actually slaying a dragon, but their brain feels like they are. And they're experiencing that in certain ways. Emotionally, they're experiencing it too. I just think that's just so wonderful about games in general. Okay, the second game I wanted to ask you about, because it just seems like something I would personally have so much fun with, is Village Witch Post. The little description I have for that is that it is a postcard game, and I love postcards and snail mail, for a witch writing letters about her new home. So tell me a little more about that one. I remember now where the idea for that came from. I think I'd wanted to, I had seen about postcard games and thought that could be interesting and then there was a postcard game jam and I think I just kept looking at my games and thinking about all these other witchy game ideas that I had and because Village Witch you're riding through your year of trying to find a village that's going to be your new home it then seemed a natural progression that you could write a friend about it so Village Witch Post it fits on the size of a postcard, and you can. It gives you prompts to go through, which you don't have to play it along with Village Witch, but you can. And it gives you prompts of writing a letter to a friend, telling about your your new home, the village that either you're trying out or the village that you decided to settle down in. 
uh, prompts for encounters that you might come across there, and just walking you through writing a letter to tell your friend, whether it's, you know, you to your own friend, a real-life friend, or if you want to address it to a fictional character or your friend's fictional character. It could even become a, become a back-and-forth game where you're writing letters in character with a friend. And I love letters, and I love writing, and I love mail. So it just all worked together to be this little perfect thing for me. That sounds so cozy and delightful. (laughs) To give folks just a quick overview of the other two games Kate has, there's Necromance, which is a game about a witch trying to bring back their dead lover through necromancy. That sounds darker and more intense of a witchy game. And Little Shop of Potions, where you're an apprentice alchemist working in a potion shop, uh, which sounds like that could be hectic or cozy, uh, depending. So Kate, before we wrap up our chat, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about, about solo games in general or your designs or anything upcoming? It's been such a... Oh, wow. I don't even know what to describe it. The past you know, year plus has been so much for so many people. And I think a lot of people have had to find new ways to, to relax by themselves. Ways to uh, keep, keep busy when you can't go out and do things. And it's something that a lot of people with chronic illness and disability also have to do a lot of the time. And I think Mm -hmm. gaming in general is something a lot of people have probably gravitated more towards the past year. Mm -hmm. But solo games are something that I think would be good for so many people that are looking for hobbies they can do by themselves. And it's something I I want to get the word out about, I'm passionate about, bringing more people in to give them ways to be creative, new ways to enjoy and enrich life through story. And maybe people who have an interest in writing but don't know what to do with it or an interest in gaming and don't know what to do with it. And I think that solo gaming could fill this little gap that a lot of people aren't sure what to do with. So for folks listening who can't wait to get their hands on a solo game, How can they find you and your games? I am on Itch. As you said, that's where I have all of my games right now. I have some in progress, but I have no timeline at all. And we will actually be out, hopefully, something soon. Uh, I'm on Twitter a lot. That's where you can find links to all my various stuff. have a Patreon that there's a tier where you get all of my games or you get new ones that come out. I started it for cosplay actually a year ago today and I had no idea I was going to start writing games in the middle of it. So I'm trying to figure out how to incorporate it all together now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what's your handle where they can find you on these platforms? It's Elliot Kate. Elliot with one L and one D. And I know it's backwards from Kate Elliot to make things confusing for people. Yeah, and just to to clarify for folks, too, the it's, I-T-S, is included uh, in that handle as well. So at it's Elliot Kate or it's Elliot Kate dot itch dot I-O to find Kate's awesome stuff. Uh, Well, Kate, thank you so much for carving out some time today to chat with me about solo games. 
Thank you. I enjoyed this. Beth Ball, pronouns she, her, is one half of the wife-husband design duo D&D Duet. She's also an epic fantasy author, bringing the world of Azuria to life. In this audio story, sponsored by Multiverse, Beth explores her journey as a designer for two. Prepare your ears for The Girl, The Wolf, and The Storyteller. The Girl, The Wolf, and The Storyteller by Beth Ball Once upon a time, a girl in a small mountain town told stories. Mostly, at first, she told the stories to herself, though some she shared with her sister. The stories helped her understand who she was and who she might be. She tucked each story inside her heart, and the stories formed a living being pulsing inside her. When the girl went into town, she collected other stories, ones from far away and a few from very near. These stories, like the ones she told, gave her hope. These stories explored how the world and those who lived in it might be. The girl tucked these stories in her heart alongside her own. Together, they shone brighter, and their pulse quickened. They grew into a storyteller inside the girl's chest. The storyteller whispered the girl to sleep at night and made her laugh in the light of the day. As the girl grew up, the stories and their teller remained a part of her. But other concerns flew in on sighing moth wings. They fluttered ever closer, and the beat of their wings obscured the whispers of the storyteller. The moths grew strong as the girl listened to them, and they transformed. They stretched their tiny furry bodies. Their wings elongated and feathers sprouted along them. The mouths turned into a flock of crows that cawed the corners of the world to the girl. They thought that the concerns, unlike the stories, would teach the girl to survive. Perhaps the concerns would help the girl to choose a more practical path. The haunting melodies filled the girl's head with still more concerns until her thoughts squawked in the exact cadence of the crows. It is especially hard when you're a girl to sing the songs of the crows. Nevertheless, she tried on their voices. She put on their costumes of wings. Truth be told, the crows thought that they were helping the girl find her way in the crow's world. But it is one thing to be a crow, another to be a girl, and something else entirely to be a storyteller. As the chaotic melodies took root, the girl put to the side the part of her that had been set aflame by the stories, the part that, in the glowing light of the tales, had come alive. The storyteller inside her, through the pain of not telling her stories, went to sleep. Dark storms arose in the girl's life. They buffeted her in her costume of wings. Though time passed and seasons changed, the storms remained. They settled thick across the horizon, so thick at points, the girl thought she would never see the sun again. Only on the very edges of the sky did the horizon, the dreams of the sleeping storyteller, catch a shimmer of the sun's rays. Past the edge of the storms and the cornflower blue of an autumn sky, the girl saw the sunset and the sunrise. Though their light never reached her, she thought, one day, it might. And on the days when this thought flickered like a butterfly onto the palm of her hand, the girl looked at the butterfly and smiled. 
She blew gently against its tiny feet and released it back into the sky, knowing, at some point, that it would come back. In the days before the storm set in, before the storyteller had fallen asleep, the storyteller took the form of a wolf to protect the girl. When the girl first learned to see the wolf, she saw her fur as thick and black, like the protector wolf in a story that she loved. But as she grew to know the wolf, the fur lightened. It turned to silver and white, almost shading to blue. Great golden eyes shone forth from the wolf's face, and when they locked on the girl and held her in their sight, the wolf, if no one else, saw her and saw who she might be, just like her stories had years before. After the storyteller went to sleep, the remembered whispers lingered. The clouds' loudest thunder couldn't drown them out, and beneath that hushed voice, the girl sensed a warning. If she or the world around her didn't change, the future the storyteller had seen might never come to be. The girl began to go for long walks, trying to break free from the storm clouds above. The clouds watched, a dark scowl along their brow. They peered into the girl's mind from high above, and they found the wolf dozing in her dreams. They marked the girl and her protector. How could what the storyteller saw possibly come to be, the clouds wondered. It couldn't, not when the girl wandered ever in their shade. Not when the girl feared the brush of their shadow, the shadows that sent a chill down her spine and caused her to cower in her small room trapped beneath the shade of the clouds. As the girl walked farther, the covering of the clouds and the storms that roiled inside them grew worse. Bolts of lightning shot onto the ground. They struck near to the girl, trying to scare her back into the enclosure of their borders. But one night on her wanderings, she saw again the golden, glowing eyes of the wolf. The girl stumbled back in surprise as the creature emerged from beneath starlit trees. This time, her wolf wasn't only in her mind. She had found a reflection of the wolf's spirit out in the world. This discovery gave the girl hope. And so the girl defied the clouds. She strode past their shaded boundaries. She endured the strikes of their lightning, and she walked beyond their tumultuous borders. The clouds didn't like this at all. They sent the crows after the girl, flapping around her with their mocking caws. They bade the girl to turn back, to turn back, and let the clouds shelter her from the strong sun. Didn't the rain provide the water that she might need? But outside the girl's home was a dry garden bed. As much as the clouds promised, whatever water they provided gave nothing to the dormant plants trapped inside. And as the girl stepped for the third time beyond the borders of the clouds, as the sunlight fell over her toes, her knees, her face, she smiled for the first time in a long time. Inside her heart, the storyteller awoke. The storyteller's golden eyes peered at this world that the girl had returned to. It was and was not her mountain home. It will be difficult for you if you remain here, the storyteller said. We have dreams and a land to discover, and better places for a wolf to roam. And so the girl, with a wolf outside and in, traveled across the mountains into a vast forested realm. The colors of fire lit the trees in the autumn. Vibrant pink blossoms came to life along the branches in the spring. New birds, scarlet cardinals, chirped from the hedgerow. 
They fluttered on the edges of her dreams. This second wolf that the girl had found saw the wolf waiting in sight of her. He tilted his head to the side. Why didn't you transform? The second wolf asked. The girl shook her head. She was a girl, not a wolf. And being a girl in a world full of birds was strange enough. The wolf nodded his head, solemn. He sat back on his haunches and waited. Each day in the forest, the clouds receded from the girl's memory, further and further away. The wolf saw this, and he decided to try again. I have something to show you, he said to the girl. Something you must see. He paced along the edge of the deep part of the forest, asking the girl to follow him inside. The girl shook her head. She had endured a forest of shade before, and was frightened of the forest of shadows that the wolf invited her to. Even in such a remote and enchanted forest, the crows still cawed from high in the treetops. The girl couldn't yet bear to hear their screeching song without a shiver running down her spine. There's nothing between the trees that will hurt you, the wolf told the girl. The girl smiled back. But I'm happy here. And the wolf nodded in return. A long winter settled in around the girl. She shivered in the cold. The wolf sat warm by her side. There's fire where I'd like to take you, he whispered. The storyteller in her heart, who had grown drowsy in the girl's hesitation to go deeper into the enchanted forest, awoke at the suggestion. She prodded at the girl. We need the fire. A few shivering days later, the girl assented. She followed the wolf as he guided her between the sweeping branches of the trees. Fallen pine needles crunched beneath her feet. They transformed as the girl walked deeper into the forest. Their browns gave way to glowing russet, to rust, to red, and turned to pure purple. The girl marveled at the eggplant-colored needles all around her. Look up, the wolf said. The girl's eyes widened to take in the colorful canopy above. Cerulean leaves waved beneath the pale pink sky. Golden blossoms emerged from behind the canopy of emerald, turquoise, and ruby. I'm glad you trusted me the wolf said. Come with me. There's something more for you to see. He led the girl to the edge of a clearing. At its center, a bonfire glowed. The girl smiled up at the wolf. Without saying anything more, he dashed off toward the flames. The wolf disappeared in the umbral halo of their glow. Wait, the girl cried. This deep inside the forest, she didn't want to wander alone. The girl raced after him, her footsteps pounding with each step. As she ran, she imagined the storyteller sprinting beside her, a second pair of feet joining her own. They fell in rhythm one after the next, carrying her across the clearing where the warmth of the fire beckoned her nearer. The girl arrived breathless to a giant bonfire tower of flickering orange flame. She sensed a presence on its other side, and slowly she traced her way around. Whispers emerged from the bonfire as she walked, and two silhouettes shimmered from within the flames. The two figures held hands and told a story together. They spoke of a girl and her two wolves, inner and outer. Into this tale, they wove the legend of a storyteller and her flight from shade to sun to forest shadow. The girl turned away from the fire and its stories and glanced back toward the trees. At the edge of the forest, the wolf waited. He was taller than she had remembered. 
The girl plodded over, the sapphire grass soft beneath her feet. The blades faded to twilight blue and the bonfire's dancing shadows. You did it, the wolf said, staring back at her, his golden eyes wide. The girl tilted her head to the side, not knowing what he meant. A smile tugged at the wolf's long lips, and he looked down at her feet. The girl's eyes followed. She gasped. Fuzzy red-brown paws perched on dark, dewy grasses where her feet had once been. Four paws, and not two feet. The many stories of the girl's hearts shuffled in their places as the girl searched between them for the storyteller. But as she searched, she found only herself. When the girl spoke to ask the wolf what had happened to her, the whispering voice of the storyteller emerged. The girl froze for a moment, and then she continued on. She and the wolf, cozy in their fur, told their own story about two shadows who had lost their souls somewhere in a world of flames. The shadows knew that they would find their souls again, the girl said in her storytelling voice, just as surely as they knew that one day, they would become who they were meant to be. Discover more from Beth at bethballbooks.com or at Grove Guardian on Twitter. Thank you, Becky, Kate, and Beth for sharing your stories with Behold Her. Thank you, Rudy Basso, as always, for editing this podcast. Thank you, Multiverse, for sponsoring Beth's story, and Greenleaf Geek for sponsoring this episode as part of our network, Penwich Studio. And I can't forget a special shout out to Gavin Moore, our latest Patreon supporter. Stay tuned for a taste of another Penwich Studio podcast I think you might enjoy. Till next time, Rose Buddies. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. And yet here we are, in defiance of Lovecraft, laughing through the darkness. The Lovely Craftians is an all-ladies Call of Cthulhu actual play podcast with horror, humor, and no small amount of chaos set in an occasionally familiar modern-day Chicago. Brought to you by Wampus House Productions and the Penwich Studio Network, You can find The Lovelies on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher, or anytime over at lovelycraftians.com. And remember, you never roll sanity alone here.